So I'm pleased to be joined by Kevin Longino. Kevin is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Kidney Foundation, and he's also a transplant recipient. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, I'm curious to, if you don't mind sharing your story in terms of your transplant and sort of that journey, and you and I have never really had that conversation. Sure. Uh, I'm, I am happy. I'm one of the fortunate ones. I, I went into, uh, I was about 39 years old. I went into the doctor for, for frequent headaches and headaches that just wouldn't go away. I think I had a headache that lasted two weeks and uh, found out I had off the charts uh, hypertension and the, the, the primary care physician uh, appropriately asked me if I had kidney history of kidney disease in my family. And I answered yes. My mother had dealt with kidney issues all her life. And my grandfather died at age 41 in 1953 and uh, of what was called in Bright's disease. And um, I found out from there that uh, I had my kidneys were under stress for some reason. And we ordered a, a biopsy. I was referred to a nephrologist and found out I had, I had FSGS. So I'm struck that, that in your case, you really were lucky in the sense that the primary care physician diagnosed you instantly and you were able to get referred for care from a nephrologist. Yeah, I, I, it turns out I've learned that since I've been at the National Kidney Foundation, that's that's very much the exception and not the rule, that oftentimes uh, the primary care physician sees the issue but um, but moves on and would just simply treat the hypertension but never go to the underlying cause, which was kidney failure. Between your initial diagnosis and then your transplant, how long was that? Well, it was about three and a half years. Also a good story. My When I first was diagnosed, my physician, my nephrologist looked at my records and felt like my kidneys were probably going to fail in about six months based on the rapid decline and that I would have to go on dialysis. And he gave me a lot of information about peritoneal and home dialysis uh, versus in center. And I was able to plan that. He also gave me a lot of information around transplant. Um, most of these brochures and documents, by the way, he gave me were all from the National Kidney Foundation, which is my first introduction to NCAF as a patient. But I was able to have a runway and I was able to plan what I wanted to do, which was to do peritoneal dialysis from home. You, know, you mentioned the, the, the information from the National Kidney Foundation. So how did you then get involved in the organization as a volunteer? Well, I, I got involved with the National Kidney Foundation locally. I was invited. I reached out to the local organization. Uh, they invited me to a, a couple of events. Uh, I couldn't come, but I, I was persistent uh, in meeting with them. And over breakfast, I was invited to a kidney walk. And, you know, I just didn't really think that was my style. But because I did peritoneal dialysis, I'd never really met that many kidney patients before. I, I kind of had a singular solo experience. And when I went to a kidney walk and I met the one in New York is huge. I mean, there's seven, 8,000 people that come. Uh, I met all these people that are at different points in their journey that had just been diagnosed or been on dialysis for years or gotten a transplant. And I realized there was a big community of people that were dealing with kidney disease all at once. And I decided from there, I wanted to be a part of this and wanted to get involved. You know, you're making an observation that hadn't occurred to me before. I'm just wondering if we could explore it a bit, which is as the United States tries to move toward more home-based dialysis that is going to sort of make it more of a, if you will, a singular activity with person on dialysis in the family, but not so much with other um, people with kidney failure. Any thought as to how to address that issue as we move forward? 
Yeah, I thought about that a lot uh, since since that I look at my experience and since we've been talking about the accelerating home dialysis and organization has. And I think now, you know, with with isolation being a common phrase that we're using daily right now, I think we're going to be able to really understand this better going forward. And I think what it's going to say is it's going to be more important for home dialysis patients to be part of some sort of family, whether it's an online community, uh, whether it's a, a group uh, somewhere in their town uh, where they can physically go and, and, and talk about their experience and talk about their issues. But it bring, being a home dialysis person brings, brings with it some amount of isolation. It brings with it some amount of fending for yourself in terms of dealing with issues. And um, simple things like, you know, like I said, I did peritoneal. So simple things like like dropping the cap to the catheter on the floor uh, on a regular basis. That that how do you resolve that problem um, and not end up on Cipro every time you do it? Um, those kinds of things. Uh, people need some kind of community to help them work through. You may not always get that from your local sponsored uh, dialysis center. You yeah. mentioned the the current situation and all of us um, or many of us being, uh, if you will, quarantined our homes. I'm just sort of curious, as you're someone with a kidney transplant, what this experience has been like for you. The the work from home experience for me has been I've been interesting. It's not always good, but I've adapted fairly quickly. I think one of the things, the first things I had to adjust to was just simply n not going anywhere. I mean, I, I I go out for walks two or three times a day just to keep moving and and not go stir crazy. Uh, uh, but I think the thing it's odd to me to not go to a, to not go to a store, to not go to a gas station, to not go to not even get in my car and drive anywhere. Um, that's been that's been somewhat odd to me. I mean, I, I, in my household, I tend to do all the shopping. I tend to, to like to do all the shopping and like to run those sorts of errands. And um, I think I, I, I last day I was in the office was March 9th. I had just come back from a weekend conference in Phoenix and I came back and decided no more. And uh, I, I had a quick run to the grocery store that, that made me nervous uh, a little bit and a, and a quick run somewhere else, uh, the, maybe maybe the day or second day of uh, working from home. And I just decided uh, it's not worth it. Um, and that I can just have whatever I need delivered. And if I can't have it delivered, I'll just have to do without. Uh, so far, it's not been a problem from getting supplies or getting things home. I live in an area where there's lots of delivery, but I think that's been interesting. I've been doing a lot of, I've been doing a lot of Zoom calls with friends uh, after hours uh, and on the weekends just to just to get some kind of social contact going. Uh, my wife's the same way. She's an executive of a tech company, uh, and she normally travels internationally and she was so concerned about bringing home the virus to me given it's undetectable and there's not enough tests around uh, that uh, she she's isolated as well and so it's been interesting spending a month or six weeks um, apparently she still likes me because she hasn't made any filings uh, but uh, it I think it's been odd to be to be locked in if you will uh, and not have social contact and I think as a manager as a manager, I'm a I'm a walking around manager. I'm a one minute manager. I like to walk down the hall, uh, chat for a second, uh, let the creativity happen spontaneously, whiteboard a few things and move on. And that's been very difficult. Everything has to be scheduled. And I think we've lost some spontaneity uh, in some of the things that we've done, uh, at least from, from my perspective. So that's been an adjustment. Yeah, that's a piece I haven't 
been able to figure out how to replicate is the, the hallway conversation and the, hey, I've been wanting to run something by you. What do you think of this? Which then leads to a separate conversation yeah. and then sometimes a really good idea. And I don't know how you replicate that through, you know, go to meeting or Zoom or conference calls or just there's just not a natural way to do it. Certainly not by email. Certainly not by email. Certainly not by scheduling. I, I think um, more and more. Uh, my staff and I are having, you know, sending a text message and say, can you, can you talk right now? And as much as possible, I try to honor that because I do miss the hallway conversations. I do miss the spontaneity. I do miss the, just, just the kind of the freedom you have of just brainstorming an idea uh, over the, around the coffee machine. Um, I think those things are uh, somehow we're going to have to figure out how to replace it. I think that's a big part of the office dynamic that we're not really catching. So in terms of the National Kidney Foundation's response to, to COVID-19, um, my sense is there's, there's two major pathways. One is around education and providing educational material for people with kidney diseases, kidney failure, and kidney transplants. And then the other pathway is, is in the policy arena and addressing the myriad policy issues that have come up both on the legislative side, but particularly on the regulatory side. And obviously, ASN and NCAP work closely there with other members, of the, you know, with each other, but also with other members of the kidney community. But I'd like to focus a little bit on the patient education material. If you could just describe those for us. Sure. I, when all this was announced and suddenly cities and states were, were canceling events and requesting people to stay home and work from home, we were obviously we're already monitoring the phone calls we get on our NCAF CARES line. We were looking at the kinds of emails we're getting. We're looking at our, our web traffic. And we're realizing that, um, people were really operating from a level of fear and that what, if we were going to be effective at any kind of patient education, particularly kidney disease and COVID-19 and what that meant or transplant and COVID-19, that we needed to really give people educational materials in, in small bites. Uh, so we, we, we kind of, we call it micro learning. It's not our term. It's just, it, it's a, it's an educational term, but we started breaking down a lot of things to very small bite-sized pieces that are in the form of a question. And we changed our whole social media, uh, campaigns and presence to really ask these very specific questions and let people try to self-identify that this is a question they need to know. Uh, and then secondarily, we put together uh, a very common, I mean, at one place microsite around kidney disease and COVID-19 and what you should know as a, as a way to, one, for us to curate information in a way, both materials from coming from us, but also from the CDC and ASN and other organizations um, to, to have a good landing place for it. I think it would give us a better way to measure the effectiveness of the materials, measure click-throughs, measure uh, the usage rates. Uh, and have everything in one spot and really do improve uh, search engine optimization. So we kind of did those two things. We really looked at the content, how to better improve the content, but also then how to put it in a place where it's not spread all over our site, but let people, let us measure how effective we're being. So, so far, so good. It seems to be, it seems to be working and the feedback we're getting quite good. So what information has gotten the most traffic or what are some of the, the sort of highlights in terms of traffic and click-throughs? Well, it's kind of gone through an arc. Originally, it was the most of the traffic was what was questions around from, say, a dialysis patient would say, well, my city has told me I can't leave my house, but I have to go to in-center dialysis. What do I do? How do I stay safe? Um, I use public transportation. How do I deal with public transportation in my dialysis center? Or if I use it, if I take a taxi service or I use a 
um, you know, some other service, how do I stay safe? And because there's, you know, there's fear of being, there's fear of being with a driver, uh, uh, someone you don't know, there's fear of being with other people using man's transit. So we gave advice and tips on that. We give a lot of advice of, of people that feel like they may have the symptoms, but not all the symptoms. So what should they do if they're on, if they're a transplant patient or if they're a dialysis patient? Um, and then the other thing that, that, you know, as you know, diet is very important to kidney patients. And so a lot of kidney patients were, were worried about how do I keep a kidney friendly diet going uh, while in isolation, but only having access to certain things, things that are that are um, that are shelf friendly, like like rice and lentils and, and beans and, and things that sometimes are high in phosphorus or high in potassium. So really trying to optimize a kidney friendly diet for diet for food that's a, that's may only be available because everything else is bought out or or because it's shelf space um, or shelf life friendly uh, is difficult. So we've been looking at recipes and advice uh, to help people manage uh, manage their diets and continue to stay healthy during their isolation periods. What are your plans moving forward in terms of as you think about educating patients through sort of this part of the crisis and pandemic, and then as we think about the summer, fall, into next year. I'm just sort of curious as to what you're sort of, as you're outlining your agenda, what it looks like. Well, I think we're we're really trying to pay attention to what's working and what's helping people change their behavior. Uh, we're looking at doing a lot of surveys going forward to see what else we could be doing or, or, or see what we need to continue to do. But having really good interaction with patients on an ongoing basis instead of kind of a, a one-to-many push strategy, uh, but having an interactive uh, strategy with patients is real important. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people um, are a little nervous about the idea of going back to work and what questions should they be asking their work, their workspace, or even what requirements should they be insisting on in their workspace once, once, once things get back to somewhat whatever the new normal is going to be. So I think we're going to be looking at workspace safety, workplace safety. We're going to give people advice on, on what to ask for from their HR departments or any other uh, any other sort of department that's responsible for keeping them safe and secure and productive in their in their job. So I mentioned that in addition to the patient education efforts, you've been doing a lot related to, to policy and advocacy and focusing on both the legislative and regulatory branches. And, and one of the points you made earlier too has been how involved the states have been in driving a lot of the response to COVID-19. And one of the issues that's emerged is the variance among states in terms of what I'll say is rationing of care and the fact that if there's a shortage of ventilators in some states, people with end-stage kidney disease or kidney failure would not be eligible for ventilators. And I'm just curious as to how NKF has approached addressing that issue. Well, you know, first and foremost, everything that we look at, we believe that all decisions need to be a shared decision-making process between a patient and their physicians. Um, and not something that's kind of mandated by a system, whether it's a governmental system or whether it's a or state level system or a policy decision. And so that's kind of always our filter. But but in in this crisis in particular, uh, when we started seeing some of the states make these blanket policy decisions, um, the, the first thing we did was start getting with our local offices, start looking at our grassroots volunteers that we had in that state and the contacts we had in that state in departments of health in the governor's office uh, or in the state legislature and and really started working a campaign to, to make people aware that this was actually going on and what we found is um, people really didn't understand 
completely that in many cases this was a, this was a choice that was being made. Uh, we believe that if you're going to make look, we know there's going to be some very difficult decisions to be made uh, when you have a scarce material like a ventilator, and and yet you've got some hard decisions to make about who's going to have access to that or not. We we understand that. But we think that decision ought to be made locally and not before somebody actually arrives in the hospital uh, and arrives and presents. And um, so we, we've really been trying to activate our grassroots campaign and our grass tops uh, influencers at a state level. And we've written some very pointed letters uh, to different hospital system groups uh, and other organizations to to really highlight this issue and highlight the, our, our displeasure with it. So I know you're a photographer. I'm just curious, what makes a great shot? Wow, um, that's a that's a that's a big question. I think what makes a great shot. I think there's a couple things. Uh, one, uh, particularly if you're talking about editorial style photography, you know, the things we're most familiar with, newspaper, National Geographic, things like that. I think the the, the photographer has to decide: do they want to be an observer or do they want to be a participant? Do they want to be in the mix? Uh, and, and from the perspective of someone that's doing the event, or do they want to be standing off to the side and saying, these are the facts, uh, here's what I witnessed, here's what I saw. And I think having a conscious decision uh, about that lets you have a more effective, effective photograph for, for the audience and for the message that you're trying to communicate. I think when I think about what we do in terms of advocacy, I think it's no different. I think as an organization, we can sit back and say, well, this is this is what we observe happening and here are the facts and here's what makes sense and here's what's working and here's what's not working. And we can present that or we can get in and mix it up and say, this is what patients feel. This is what patients see. This is what patients are. Um, and we we can paint a picture of kidney disease from that directive. I don't know if this was the angle you were looking for, but uh, this is how I this is how I view the, the photography and what makes a good photograph versus uh, what makes a good advocate and what makes a good patient advocate. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining us. You're a patient. You're a patient advocate. You're also a leader of one of the most important organizations in our community. Um, obviously, ASN really enjoys its relationship and partnership with NCAF. I enjoy working with you personally, and you know, my hope is we'll both be back in the office sometime soon. Thank you, Todd. I, I really also appreciate the work that we've been able to do with ASN. I think our, our, our work together on appropriations, our work together trying to advance the, the, the spirit and the intent of Kidney X, uh, I think are coming together on these key issues around uh, advancing American Kidney Health Initiative as well as the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, it's been, it's been a, a, we've been effective and I look forward to the deliverables and the ideas and actions that come out of all this. Well said, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the American Society of Nephrology.